we are still considering, as most of you will remember, the words are found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, and let me read again from verse 18 to verse 23. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now, we are establishing this present point, that the Apostle's way of giving comfort to Christian people who are suffering and who are in afflictions is to teach them how to reckon, how to deduce from their Christian doctrine their whole attitude towards these trials. That's his method. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. And amidst, amongst these doctrines, the one that he's particularly concerned about for them to realize is the doctrine concerning the glory that awaits all Christians and indeed awaits, in a sense, the whole of creation. That's his thesis, that it is only as we know something about that glory that we shall be able to deal with these sufferings. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Well, if we don't know about that uh, glory, we shan't be able to work out this argument. We shan't be able to see and to know that the present sufferings are really not uh, in the same world, as it were, not worthy of comparison, they have no weight at all uh, when you put them into the light of that glory. So the Apostle is here now telling us something about the greatness of that coming glory. And his way of doing it is, as we've seen, to tell us that the whole of creation is looking forward to it. And why is it looking forward to it? Well, because of its glorious character and because it itself is going to participate in it. Now, what we are doing at the moment is to look at something of the glory or the glorious character of this glory that is to come. We have looked at it as it is to be seen in our Lord himself. And we began at the end last Friday night to consider this as it has reference to us. Now, you notice the way the Apostle puts it. He says, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Again, he says, The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's us who believe, Christian people. It's confined, of course, to such persons, to Christian believers. The unbeliever has nothing to look forward to, and he certainly is not going to take part in the glory. He shall see it, and then see his folly in having missed this. 
as the result of sin and unbelief. Very well, the whole universe will see this glory. It is the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, I reminded you at the very end last week that our Lord himself, in the 13th chapter of Matthew, verses, verse 43, says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then he adds this word, He who hath ears to hear, let him hear. This is the thing to concentrate on. The righteous are going to shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now then, let's have a look at our part in this coming glory. We've seen it in the Lord himself, but we are to be a very prominent part of this glory with him. If we suffer with him, we may be also glorified together. Well, what is this? Well, it's what the Apostle calls in the 23rd verse, the adoption. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. Now, what is this? Well, the adoption means the placing as sons. We are already the children of God. He has reminded us of that. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are already that. Yes, but at the moment, though we are the children, we have not entered into the inheritance, because children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Yes, but while we are in this world, we are indistinguishable uh, as regards appearance and so on from those who are not the children of God. The adoption means the entering into the estate, the full status and position of the children, the sons of God. Now, this is very interesting the way he puts it. He says, the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. You see, we are the sons of God now. Yes, but we haven't been manifested yet. Now, here's an obvious comparison, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was in this world, was the eternal Son of God. But he was not manifest as such. People looked at him and just saw a man. They saw a carpenter. The glory was hidden. It was veiled. But there's a day coming when it's going to be revealed. Now, as regards our Lord, those who had eyes to see could see something of it even when he was here. John says in his prologue, We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John and Peter and James certainly saw more of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now there the glory was manifested, as it were the veil was drawn back for a moment, and the glory began to shine. But while he was here, speaking generally, the glory was veiled. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The glory was not manifested. But when he comes again, it will be. And the same thing applies to us. The creation is waiting for the manifestation, the revealing, the unveiling of the sons of God. Now, we are sons already, I remind you. But the full glory of our position and relationship is only going to be made plain at this great day 
when this glory will be revealed. Now then, this is the thing that we've never got to bear in mind, that this is something which the whole of creation is looking forward to. Now then, what does it mean? Well, let's look at it like this. What shall we be like then? Now, I'm talking about you and myself as children of God, as those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we going to be like? What a wonderful thing it is that here this evening in the midst of life with all its problems and difficulties, we can consider what we are going to be. That's what the Apostle is inviting us to do. Well, the answer, of course, is found in many places. Take, for instance, what we were reading just now out of the first epistle to the Corinthians in that great 15th chapter. You've there got a very wonderful account of it from verse 39 right away through to verse 54. The corruptible is going to be put aside and we shall be incorruptible. All that is but natural will no longer be natural, it will be spiritual. That's the thing that he is emphasizing in that uh, great uh, chapter, which we normally think of, and rightly, of course, as a chapter concerning the resurrection. But we mustn't stop at the resurrection. We must include the glorification as well as the resurrection. The body is not only raised, it is changed, it is glorified. That's the argument. And so often that is forgotten by people. He, his emphasis is upon the changing, the glorification, and the change that is involved in that. Well, now, there's one great statement of it, and we can never dwell on that too frequently. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. That's the teaching. And so incorrupt, corruption shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality. There's a bit of it. Then you've got us the same teaching in its essence in the second epistle to the Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 18. We all, he says, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, we are being prepared for something of this even at this present moment. But listen to this still more definitely in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at the first verse. For we know, he says, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with heavens, eternal in the heavens. He says, if this body, which is but a tent, this tabernacle, if, when, if, this should, if we should die and this disintegrates and dissolves, we've got a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed. The Christian isn't the man who just wants to get out of the body. That's Hinduism. That's the false religion. The Christian doesn't merely want to die and get out of the body to get away from his troubles. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. You see, this is positive. Clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. 
The Christian is the man who wants to be clothed with this house which is from heaven, this glorious body that is coming. Now he that hath brought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. There's a great statement of it. Then, of course, we've got another very notable one in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's where our citizenship is. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, or this body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, the body of his glorification, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There, there it is. This body is the body of my humiliation. This is the body in which sin still dwells. This is the body which has resulted from the fall. But then, it's not going to be this. It's going to be the body of my glorification, like unto the body of his glorification. The kind of thing the apostles saw on the road to Damascus, and so on. Well, there it is. But go on, let's, let's get our evidence. We can never know too much about this. Christian people are as they are because they don't know this sort of thing. The church is as she is, because very largely today she doesn't even believe this. But this is the scriptural teaching. This is the teaching of the Lord himself and of the inspired apostles. So turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And what a comfort it is. And then we go for our last description to the great verse in the first epistle of John in the third chapter. Let me read the first two verses. Here it is exactly the same doctrine. Beloved, behold, brother, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Don't be worried, don't be troubled if the world doesn't recognize you. Don't be troubled if the world regards you as a fool. That was their attitude towards him. That's because we are children of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We are already the sons of God. Even at this moment, we are the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a wonderful statement of it that is. We don't know all about it. We don't know much about it indeed. But we do know this, that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, here on earth, as We've had it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We look as in a glass darkly. We look at him as through a glass darkly and are changed from glory to glory in this image. But then seeing him full disclosed as he is, we shall be perfectly like him. 
our bodies and everything else glorified. Well, now you've noticed that in all those passages, the emphasis is upon the glorification of the body, the physical body, the material body. And it's very important that we should hold on to this. There are so many today who even regard themselves as Christians who don't believe in the resurrection and glorification of the body. What they think that happens to a Christian is that when he dies, he goes to be with Christ, and they seem to think of him in some vague, nebulous, indefinite spiritual state and condition. But that isn't the teaching of the Scripture at all. The Scripture teaches the resurrection of the body, and it's an essential part of our salvation. And as I'm going to show you, we shall dwell in these glorified bodies in a glorified earth, on a glorified earth, in a glorified world. Now, this is one of these great doctrines that's gone almost right out. And unless I say, unfortunately, the Christian church speaking generally doesn't believe this and therefore doesn't teach it. And that's why it's lost its hope. And that's why it's spending most of its time in trying to preserve life in this world and spends most of its time preaching politics and trying to stop bombs and get disarmament. It's because it knows nothing of and doesn't believe the scriptural teaching about this glorification of the body which is going to come. The body will be perfect. It'll have no blemish, it'll have no weakness, it'll have no disease. Now, you'll notice the apostle tells us that there are two ways in which we enter into that state of the glorified body. Those who have died will come to it through a resurrection. Those who are still on earth when our Lord comes will be changed immediately. It will be one or the other. If we are still here when he comes again, our bodies will be immediately changed. If we've already died and been buried, well then, there will be this process of change and of glorification as a part of the resurrection. But it doesn't matter which, says the apostle. The important thing is that it's going to happen. It will happen for certain to all who are the children of God. They will have a glorified body. It won't be this body. It'll be a glorified one. It won't be flesh and blood. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It'll be a spiritual body. But it'll be a true body, even as our Lord's resurrection glorified body was a true body also. Our Lord did not appear as a phantom to the uh, disciples. You notice the emphasis that is given to that point in Luke 24. There are some people who are today teaching the resurrection as if it consisted nothing but of some kind of spiritualistic phenomenon, that our Lord's appearances were similar to the appearances of these materializations of spirits, and they think that that's resurrection. It's the exact opposite. It's a denial of the resurrection. No, no. The teaching is that it's a true body. It's a glorified body and it's a spiritual body. But nevertheless, it is a true body. And whether we get it in one way or the other, the important thing is that we shall have it. Now then, there is the first thing that we have to realize about ourselves. Even this body shall be absolutely perfect. It will be a glorious body like the body of our risen Lord himself. But not only that, we shall be spiritually perfect also, at the same time. The fact is that we shall be perfect in every respect. But let's read Paul's description 
of the spiritual perfection in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. He is comparing the relationship of husbands and wives to that of Christ and the church. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. That is a description of what you and I as members of the church and as children of God are going to be. You've got another description of it in Colossians 1, verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that in order that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And when he says perfect, he means it. We shall be perfect in Christ Jesus. And then there are descriptions of it which are very wonderful in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Let me remind you of some of them. Here, for instance, in the seventh chapter, beginning at verse 14, I read this. And I said unto him, oh, let's take the question first in verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, and he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun lighten them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's what we shall be like. No more sorrow, no more sighing, and no more sin. Christian people, this is what is promised you. But listen to it in Revelations 21, in the second verse. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned, for her husband. Let me go on. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. There it is. And how wonderful it is. You can't imagine anything that goes beyond that. In other words, our condition shall be this. We shall be perfect and entire in every respect. Spiritually, morally, physically, bodily. Not only that, we shall be enjoying complete satisfaction. No need whatsoever. Every need fully satisfied, delivered forever and forever from all the things that have ever caused us misery or unhappiness or pain or sorrow. That is what we are destined for. This is the sort of thing which you have to compare your present sufferings with. And it's only as you see this you'll be able to say that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared 
with the glory which shall be revealed in us. But wait a minute, let's go on. What shall we inherit? That's what we are going to be like, but what are we going to inherit? The Apostle's argument is, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What are we going to inherit? Well, one thing he tells us in 2 Timothy 4.8 is this, is that we shall inherit a crown of righteousness. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. A kind of garland, a crown of righteousness. There's nothing more wonderful than that. But then in addition to that, we shall receive the kingdom. You remember our Lord taught that in the 25th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in that third and uh, last parable of his where he contrasts those who believed in him and those who haven't. And what he says is this, to those who have believed in him in verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now what is this kingdom? Well, there's a very interesting sidelight onto this in the epistle to the Hebrews. In the second chapter, here is a thing again which is much neglected. Let me read it to you, beginning at verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come of which we speak. Now that's an odd construction. It means this. He says, he has not put the world to come of which I am speaking in subjection unto angels. Well, to whom? But one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownedst him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands, thou hast put all things in subjection unto, under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. Now that's what he's talking about, the world to come of which we speak. That's what we are going to inherit. He says this hasn't been put aside for angels, but for us. We who are the children of God, the world to come of which we speak. What is this? Well, let Peter help to answer the question. Peter, in the first epistle, in the first chapter, puts it like this, beginning to read at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to what? To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if needs be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. You see, all these apostles preach the same doctrine. Every one of them's got it. Association of coming glory and present suffering. Well, now there's a picture of our inheritance. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it'll never fade away. Let them use all their bombs together. They won't touch this. This is reserved for us. 
Man with all his folly and malignity can never touch it. God himself is reserving it for us. Well then you go again to the book of Revelation to that 21st chapter and there's a great description. I can't read it but you read it for yourselves. Start reading in Revelations 21 verse 9 and then you will get this extraordinary description. It's in symbolic form of course. It's in the form of pictures and images but it is this picture of this inheritance that we are going to enter into. This world we are going to live in when we have this glorified body of ours, when we shall be like him, the inheritance. You see, they call upon all their powers of expression and use all these images in order to give us some notion of it. So I ask my next question, what shall we be doing there? How do we occupy ourselves in that state? Well, we've already had a part of the answer, haven't we? in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelations in verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. But there's something else very remarkable that's going to be true of us according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. Let me read the first three verses. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you? Is it possible that you're doing that? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge, which means to govern or rule the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? And the angels are God's servants. These ministering spirits, we're going to be ruling over them. We shall be ruling, reigning with Christ over the world and over these ministering angels of God. We are not told any more than that, but we are told that. That's going to be our position. We are glorified together with him. And everything will be subject to him. And with him, everything will be subject to us. So we shall judge the world and we shall judge the angels, these ministering spirits. Well, now, there is just some conception of the part that you and I are going to play in this coming glory. Glorify together with him and we'll be something like that. This is Christianity. This is the thing by which the New Testament Christians lived. It was because of this they were not afraid of their persecutors. They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord to save their lives. No, no. They knew that this was come. This was the secret of their endurance, their patience, and their triumphing over everything that was set against them. Very well. We've seen something of the glory in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We've seen it as it shall be revealed and manifested in us and through us. But we haven't finished. The whole creation is going to participate in this also. Now then, here is his great statement in verse 21. For, he says, because the creature, the creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's why the creation is looking forward to it. 
It's got this sense, this feeling, it's been given this promise that it's going to share in the glory and it's going to share in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. That's what it means. That's a better translation. The liberty of the glory of the children of God. What's it mean? Well, creation's going to be set free from the bondage of corruption. We've already considered that. It'll no longer be subject to that. You know, it is only then that creation will really be free to develop as it was meant to do, as God created it to do. It is only then it'll be entirely delivered from every element of disintegration. We saw that as it is, it's subject to vanity. There's a sort of futility about it, that there's this element of decay and putrefaction in it. It'll be free from that. There'll be nothing of that left at all. There'll be no more strife. There'll be no more discord, as we shall see in the quotations. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more weeds. There'll be no more fungi. There'll be no more growths. You look at nature, it's full of that sort of thing. That's why man has to struggle. And he earns his living by the sweat of his brow because of all these elements that have come in as the result of the curse upon creation as the result of man's fall. In other words, what are we talking about? Well, we are talking about paradise regained. We've already considered paradise lost, but paradise is to be regained. This is a part of the great salvation. The whole creation is involved. It isn't just that man's forgiven and that he goes to heaven in a spiritual form. No, no, no. Paradise is to be regained. Man, when he was created, was put in paradise. He was driven out of it. He's been trying to get back ever since, but he can't. The flaming sword and the cherubims are there to stop him. But paradise is to be regained for those who are the children of God. Now then, what is this? What am I talking about? Well, this paradise that is to come, that is to be regained, is something which the prophets of the Old Testament wrote about and prophesied. Listen to Isaiah in chapter 11. Let me read to you verses 6 to 9. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. This is what it's going to be like. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed their, their young ones, shall lie down together. The cow and the bear shall feed their young ones, shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. He's carnivorous now, he won't be then. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's Isaiah prophesying this condition in which the whole creation shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. All the enmity nature red in tooth and claw finished. Parasites have gone. All the things that make life so difficult will have disappeared. And there you will get this amazing, incredible harmony, even amongst the animals and the beasts of the field. Well, then he's got another description of it in the 35th chapter of his prophecy. I'm sorry that I haven't got time to read all this to you. 
But there it is. Read it for yourself. It begins like this. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it in the excellency of Carmel and of Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. And it ends with these words. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall free, flee away. Well, then you've got something similar again in the 55th chapter of this great prophecy. Let me just read to you one verse, the 17th, the last verse. Instead of the 13th, instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name and for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And then a final quotation from Isaiah 66. Let me read to you verses 22 to 24. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Well, now there is Isaiah prophesying all this. Then you remember, I've already quoted to you, I think, our Lord's teaching Concerning this, his prophecy in the 19th chapter of Matthew, verses 27 to 29. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's it. In this regeneration, all things made new. That is to be the condition. Then we've already quoted, I think, Act 3, where you've got the same prophecy exactly made by the Apostle Peter in his explanation of the events and circumstances to those people who couldn't understand what was happening. Acts 3, 20 and 21. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now that's a very important statement. Peter is saying here that God from the very beginning through the mouth of his prophets has been talking about this time of the restitution of all things. Yet how often have you heard preaching on this? Do you believe this? Why is this not being preached and why is it being denied? It's an essential part of the teaching. All the prophets have spoken. Our Lord spoke about it. Peter is here reminding us of that. Well then, of course, you've got the apostles own description of it in 1 Corinthians 
15. Now let me read this time, verses 24 to 28. Then cometh the end, when he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. It's the Son handing back this perfected kingdom to his heavenly Father who had entrusted it to him. Well, all right, says the Apostle again in Ephesians 1.10. Here's the, here's the purpose of salvation. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. There it is. Then remember again in this context, Hebrews 2, 5, the world to come of which we speak. Remember again Hebrews 12, where you've got uh, again a description of this towards the end in that mighty statement beginning at verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also him. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, that whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. But we've got a more detailed description in the second epistle of Peter and in chapter 3. Here it is in verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now, the world as it is now, he says is not going to be destroyed by water, by flood, as the first was, but the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But here's the detailed description, beginning at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for these things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Well, now, there it is. You see, there's going to be a great cleansing of this old universe. All sin and evil and every vestige of it will be burned out. Everything will be purged out of it. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And again, look up Revelations 20. Now, here is a very striking statement, and it's a part of this description. 
Let me read to you verse 11 in, the, in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. But listen to this in verses 14 and 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that's a very important statement for this reason. Because it reminds us again that death is going to be destroyed. Death and Hades are to be cast into the lake of destruction. In other words, in this renovation, there'll be no death. Death came in as the result of men's sin. In this restitution, reconstitution, in the glory, death will have no place at all. All that belongs to evil, people and the devil and his angels and all others, they'll be in that state of everlasting destruction, not in God's perfect universe, I don't know where, but outside somewhere. That's their everlasting destruction. But God's universe will be perfect and even death will have no part or place in it. Now then, that is the description given in the scriptures of this wonderful renovation that is to take place even in the creation. The creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. And it's going to be something like that. And what we are told is that you and I are going to dwell in that kind of world under these new heavens, on this new earth, with the animals that have been such bitter enemies, attacking and destroying and eating one another, eating together, lying down together, and a little child leading them, putting his finger on the asp, as it were. Nothing at all to harm us in any way. Now, it's inconceivable, isn't it? But that's exactly what we are told is coming. And you know what all this is. This is just a fulfillment, you see, of what is prophesied in Psalm 8. Now, there is the key to all this. You see, remember what we are told there about men and how appropriate this is at the present time with all this interest in the heavens and so on. There is the description given by the psalmist, inspired by the Spirit of God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger, when I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him, hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatever, whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Yes, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews again. That's very wonderful poetry. But it isn't true. We see not yet all things put under him. That's very wonderful imagery and poetry. But it isn't true. We see, we see not yet all things put under him. Quite so, says this man. 
I'm agreeing it's not under men now. Well, very well, then what hope have I got? What comfort have I got? And here is the answer. We see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor already. He's there already. And because he's there, we are going to be there. And when this will have arrived, Psalm 8 will be true of us. We shall be the lords of creation again. Paradise will have been regained. Adam in paradise was the lord of creation. He lost it as the result of sin. Man is not lord of creation now, but we'll regain paradise. All this will come and man will be as depicted in the 8th Psalm. We see Jesus and we are going to be like Jesus. We shall be glorified and we shall be the lords of creation. Very well, there is the teaching. We've got to leave it at that for this evening. But that is the great promise that is held before us. And it is in the light of this that we are to draw the deduction that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is what is coming. I believe that in a way our Lord's miracles were a foreshadowing of this. He could get rid of diseases. He could control the raging of the sea. He could stop the wind. He could control everything. That was just an indication of the glory which is coming. The miracles, our Lord's nature miracles, I believe, are a foreshadowing of something of this glory that will be his and which we shall share with him because we are God's children and therefore joint heirs with him. Well, read these things for yourselves. That's the description. Not surprising that the whole creation is looking forward to this, that it's stretching out its neck, waiting for it, the manifestation of the children of God. It's waiting to see it, see him, see us. Yes, and what's going to happen to itself? Delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Oh, my dear friends, it's because we don't know about all this as we should that we are so often defeated and dispirited and discouraged. This is literally what is going to be true of all of us who are the children of God. Will we ever again allow anything to get us down in this world? Will you ever grumble and complain anymore? Will it worry you very much what men may do to you? That's the argument. You are being prepared for this indescribable glory which is awaiting the children of God. It's going to be manifested. It's going to be revealed. Lift up your heads. Lift up your hearts. By faith, keep your eye there. Set your affections on things above, not on things which are on the earth. These are passing and temporary. That is a kingdom which cannot be moved. And it is the kingdom which God has prepared for his people, his children, before the foundation 
of the world. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come to thank thee and to bless and praise thy name, that thou hast graciously been pleased to record these things for us in thy word. Lord, we feel that we are utterly foolish that we live so much on our feelings and changing moods and states and conditions instead of believing thy word as it is in its glory and in its simplicity. O God, we pray thee to give us an understanding of these things. By thy Spirit authenticate this truth to us that we henceforth may live in this world as thy children, knowing that we are thy children. Whatever the world may do to us, O God, make us thus in the light of these things more than conquerors, that we may testify to thy grace and to thy glory, and by being what we are in the light of this truth, be the means of opening the eyes of others, who have all their lifetime subject to bondage because of their fear of death, and who are slaves of this present evil world that is passing away with all its disintegration and its disappointment. Lord, enable us to be such that we shall wean them and attract them and point them to the way of glory and to this inheritance that thou hast prepared for thy people. Hear us, O Lord, and bless us, we pray thee, to that end. We ask it in the name of thy dear Son, and now, may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now, this night, throughout the remainder of this hour short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until the regeneration when the glory shall be revealed and manifested in us, and we shall share it and partake of it and enjoy it forever and forever. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.